So this morning, uh, we are continuing our mini-series um, talking about some tough issues. And the issues that we're talking about center on our relationships, how we view ourselves, and how we view others. And the goal is that by asking um, hard questions about tough issues that we will be better prepared to live out the kingdom values that we've been talking about for the last few months. So we started this out uh, two weeks ago um, when we asked the question, what does the Bible say about the people of God having enemies? And here is what we discovered. Uh, number one, it is in fact biblical for us to have enemies. The Bible is full of accounts which detail how the people of God do in fact have enemies. Um, number two, God has enemies. There are power and powers and forces that actively work against God in this world, that stand opposed to him. However, God does not consider people, his creation, to be his enemies. Uh, maybe at one time he did in that he saw us as being opposed to him. But with the coming of Jesus, God showed that even though we may stand in opposition to him, he does not make himself our enemy. Instead, he treats us as friends. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10 puts it this way. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us. Which led us to this consideration, this conclusion. Just because you have an enemy, someone makes themselves your enemy, you do not have the right to treat them like you would an enemy. And this covers a lot of ground for us. We're, we're tempted to make someone our enemy when we perceive them to be an enemy of God. But while we may have enemies and while God has enemies in Christ, we are never to be an enemy. We cannot control whether someone makes themselves our enemy but we can absolutely control what our response is. And our response to someone who would make themselves our enemy is to treat them with love and goodness and grace and kindness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote these words. He says, Christian love draws no distinction between one enemy and another, except that the more bitter our enemy's hatred the greater his need of love. Be his enmity political or religious, he has nothing to expect from a follower of Jesus but unqualified love. In such love, there is no inner discord between the private person and official capacity. In both, we are disciples of Christ, or we are not Christians 
at all. We are to love our enemies in a sincere way and, and pray even for those who would harm us. And the reason why we do this is because the grace of God in Jesus structures who we are as a people. It, it makes us who we are in, and dictates how we are going to act to even those who would stand against us and harm us. And, and just as we were once enemies but were treated as friends by God, we will not treat our enemies as enemies. We are to operate under a completely different ethic where others would seek revenge or to defeat their enemies, we will love by offering grace and forgiveness. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the Christian must treat his enemy as a brother and requite his hostility with love. His behavior must be determined not by the way others treat him, but by the treatment he himself receives from Jesus. So this all sounds good. And, and we know that we are to love others, and we know that we are to love our enemies, and we're challenged by this idea that we need to love someone who would harm us. And, and, and we know that while all of this, this sounds good and might even agree that we're supposed to do it, we, we recognize that in practice this is really difficult to do. How do we love those who make themselves our enemies? How do we care for those who actively seek to do us harm? How do we not fight back with all that we have against those who would stand against our God? There is something that just seems unnatural about this, about what God is challenging us to do. And I wish that I had some easy answers for you, but unfortunately, there are none. Everything that we are discussing is difficult and challenging. That's why it's called Tough Issues not tough issues that we can make easy. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, God on the Dock. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. He's right. Because God calls us into the uncomfortable. And he's doing that in these relationships with those that we disagree with, with those that stand opposed to us. And it's a challenge. Our core passage this morning uh, comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. And here Paul writes to this church, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul was writing to a group of new Christians who were having a difficult time figuring out what following Jesus was all about and what the Christian life looked like. Now, Paul had been through the area, spent time with them, and taught them the gospel, but after Paul left, other groups of people claiming belief in Christ came through. And, and they told these new Christians um, different things. They told them, one group said that 
um, Jesus could in fact save them, but not until they became Jewish. And so they were telling uh, the men they had to be circumcised and they had to follow these feasts and they had to do all these things. A another group came through and said, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus can save you, but you have to make sure you do all of these other things after he does that if you really want like his salvation to take. It, it was a confusing time and Paul was somewhat harsh with these Galatian Christians at times in his efforts to convince them that Jesus was enough. And, and the big struggle that Paul had to keep speaking to, uh, that, that he had to keep teaching them about was he wanted them to understand that it was their faith in Jesus and the grace that Jesus offered them, that saved them. It wasn't whether they followed the law. It wasn't uh, anything else. There were no additions that they could add to this. It was their faith in Jesus Christ alone that saved them. And he didn't want them to become slaves to something else. When Jesus had set them free from sin and death, their, their faith in Jesus was what really mattered. So when we get to chapter 5, Paul finally answered what living the Christian life is all about. He's, he's tried to express to them, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And now he gets to this living peace, this, this what it looks like. And what Paul tells them about living the Christian life is shocking to me, even though I've heard it a million times. Again, he says in 13 through 15, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what is so shocking about this? Well, let me ask you this question. If if someone were to ask you what living the Christian life is all about, what would you say? I, there's probably a lot of different places that we would start this description, but uh, we'd probably say things like, you know, you need to study the Bible, you need to go to church, you need to pray. We would probably describe all of these acts of worship. And then we would probably move on to some brief recap of the moral code that we have. You know, no cussing, no smoking. No playing pool, you know, none of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and we list all of those things out. But when it comes time for Paul to describe the Christian life, he starts in a completely different place than all of those things. He does not give a list of rights and wrongs. He makes this next step that... That, that once you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus has saved you and you have accepted his grace, the way that you live out that life, that grace-filled life, is by serving one another humbly in love because the entire law, everything you could think of to do is fulfilled in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Worship is important. The moral code that scripture gives us is important. But we cannot ignore that the ethical foundation, what it looks like for us to live as a Christian, starts and ends with the way that we love others. So Paul makes his argument as clearly as he possibly can. Christ has set you free 
He's set you free from sin and death. He has set you free from the law. But he did not set you free so that you can do whatever makes you happy. Whatever you want. The term that is used here, indulging the flesh, comes from the Greek word sarx, which is translated as self-indulgence. Uh, translating that word uh, as sinful nature or self-indulgence, it, it reminds us that, that the flesh, our bodies, what we live in here, is a source that pushes us, a force that pushes us towards sin. Flesh doesn't mean just a weakness, but this sort of self-oriented desire that we find ourselves in all the time. We have been set free, but we have not been set free in Christ so that we can indulge in everything we want and take care of ourselves. Instead, we are set free in Christ so that we can take care of others. How do we do this? How do we love others in this way? How do we how do we put ourselves aside and love other people in the way that Paul is talking about? This is a legitimate question, guys, that we, that we need to give some space to. Because for as much as we talk about loving other people and how we should love others, again, in practice, this is not so easy to do, particularly when we find ourselves dealing with people that don't like us or that we may not particularly like. And let's be honest with ourselves here. Sometimes it can be hard for us to tell the difference between something we are doing for ourselves, what is self-indulgent, and something that we might label as an action we're doing for God. Sometimes we feel perfectly justified in not being loving to someone else because of who they are or what they believe or the way in which that they disagree with us. And there is at times a self-righteousness that keeps us from loving other people. We feel justified in withholding love or forgiveness or grace from someone. Sometimes we just don't want to serve others especially those who have hurt us in some way. I could go on, but I think you get the picture. Doing what Paul instructed the Galatians to do is not easy, but it is so critical, and it's the foundation of living out the Christian life. So he continues in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. How do we do these things and how do we love in this way and how do we not indulge ourselves but love others? We can't do this under our own power. We can only do this under the influence and power of God's spirit that lives inside of us. The, the phrase, live by the spirit, conveys the meaning of the literal transi- translation, by the spirit, keep on walking, keep on living. 
and, and it emphasized the moment-by-moment -moment contact with and guidance by the Holy Spirit for all of our decisions and activities. Living by the Spirit should be a daily, continuous action by Christians. The, the, the Spirit is, is always present, but we have to be in touch with the Spirit in order to stay in his guidance and correction. So the answer to how we love this way and how we treat others this way is we have to live in the Spirit. So how does that actually work? What does that look like? Well, Paul describes something for us which, which I think is helpful in, in getting us to understand where this comes from. You see, the flesh, our own desires, our self-indulgence, and the Spirit, they desire contrary things. You will not find the Spirit and the flesh in agreement. They are opposed to one another. So if you are walking by the Spirit and your desires, the flesh, come up against the desires of the Spirit, what will you experience if you are walking by the Spirit? You will experience some sort of inner conflict. There will be inner turmoil that you will not be able to just ignore, again, if you are walking in the Spirit. And this conflict that you experience will point out to you how what you want is not what the Spirit wants. The Spirit is telling you that you cannot do whatever you want, that you cannot do whatever makes you happy, or you cannot even do sometimes what you feel like is right for yourself. Now, here's the thing about this. This is a dynamic experience. Uh, maybe you know the difference between things that are static and things that are dynamic. Things that are static, they don't change. They, they stay the same. But things that are dynamic are constantly changing. And something that is dynamic is, is constantly changing and, and being applied in, in new ways, in different ways. It, it, it's always challenging us to, to move forward. And so what Paul is describing here is the Spirit will always be in conflict with our own selfish desires, and that, that conflict will show itself in lots of different ways and in lots of different situations. So you then have the choice to keep walking with the Spirit or to give in to your own desires and self-indulgence. And, and he breaks it down to this sort of basic, this basic premise, which is you can either serve yourself or you can serve God, and the way you serve God is by serving other people. And the Spirit is going to point out to you as you walk with the Spirit when you are indulging yourself and when you should turn away from that and serve God and others. Now, Paul actually does need to give the Galatians some moral guidance. They are, after all, living in a pagan city trying to figure out how to live this life as Christians. So, Paul goes ahead and gives them something that we're probably a little more comfortable with because it looks like a list. And here's what he says in verses 19 through 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, 
idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, there it is. There's the list, the right and the wrong, the things that we would describe. Well, you can't do these kinds of things if you're a Christian, and you do these other kinds of things if you're a Christian. This is what it means to live the Christian life. There's a reason why we love lists when it comes to faith. We, we love them because they give us the illusion of control. I, we can check things off. I'm not doing these bad things. I am doing these good things. And then we're able to compare our lists with other people's lists and sometimes point out to them how much better we're doing than them. Now look, yes, morality matters. What we do and what we don't do matters. But let's take a closer look at what Paul is doing here because he may not be doing what we think he's doing. There are four basic categories here in this grouping of stuff. Um, The first three that he lists are sexual sins, uh, things that they should stay away from and avoid. The next two are religious sins uh, that they had to deal with in their culture, idolatry and witchcraft, and so he warns them off of those things. Okay, so that gives us five. The next eight are sins which pertain toward our treatment of other people. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. And the last two are sins common to pagan culture and and idol worship. What is the point? There are things that we are not supposed to do, but more than half of these things are about how we treat other people. And the tricky thing there is that these things are, again, dynamic. This means that they are lived out in real time in different situations with different people. You cannot check list your way to not being jealous. Instead, when you are jealous... You have to engage that sin in in whatever way it's manifesting itself and whatever relationship it's showing up in, and you must listen to the inner conflict that the Spirit is creating in you. And then you have to deal with your jealousy and fight against it with the power of the Spirit living in you. And if that sounds hard, listen to this. When you commit the sin of jealousy or envy or rage or discord or any of these things in relationship with other people, you are choosing to be self-indulgent. But Bryce, don't I have a right to? Or what if they did this? Or what if they said that? No, what Paul says very clearly is you are choosing yourself when you do these things. You are choosing yourself. You're not choosing God. You're not choosing justice. You're not choosing righteousness. You are choosing yourself. You're choosing what you want, what you feel entitled to. When it comes down to it, guys, sin is as simple as us choosing ourselves, our feelings, or our desires over and above what God wants or what is good for other people. The alternative way to live under the Spirit leads us away from choosing ourselves and leads us toward 
serving others. And then Paul wraps up chapter 5 with these words. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So finally, Paul describes in the positive what living out this Spirit-led life looks like. And when you are led by the Spirit, something happens in you. A, this fruit begins to grow in you. And again, this is dynamic. It's ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-producing. And these fruits that are described here are, are never something you can check off or completely accomplish. They are something that is constantly being produced in you by the Spirit. And while some of them exhibit a personal inner quality, many of them are again expressed in our relationships with other people. Love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. They all describe how we serve others. And ultimately, this church is what sets us apart from the world around us. These things are what make the Christian different. Because this person is living and loving just like their God. And against the Spirit-produced fruits, there is no law. There is nothing to enslave us or keep us from the life that God is calling us to. When we come to know Christ, he says, we, we crucify our flesh. We stop living for ourselves. And we live for the one who sets us free. And this one whom we live for came here not to be served, but to serve, offering up his life for the most undeserving bunch of people. How serious is Paul about this? Well, after he goes through this entire argument, what does he say at the end? He reminds us, don't be conceited, provoking and envying each other. As if everything he just said wasn't quite enough. He had to just drive it home. So where does this leave us today? Well, we may have enemies, but we can't be an enemy to others. We are to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. How do we do that? How do we love? We have to, one, not be so interested in ourselves and what we think we deserve that we put ourselves first. Two, we have to recognize that our God is a God who loves and serves selflessly, who put us, our interests before his own and loved us recklessly and fully. We need to recognize that when we choose ourselves, we are choosing the opposite of God. And when we choose ourselves, other others, we are still choosing the opposite of what God would have us choose. This God who loves and serves us. And thirdly, we need to walk by the Spirit. 
and let the Spirit speak conflict into our hearts to shake us out of the place where we keep choosing ourselves over and over again to a place where we are choosing to serve others. This is not easy. It's tough. But as we begin to not choose ourselves, as we begin to choose others and to love them as God will love them, think about the fruit that is produced in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things grow in us and we change. Jesus did not choose himself, but he chose us. And our calling is the same, that we don't choose ourselves, but we choose to love and serve others, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they believe. The people of God will love and serve others. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these words which challenge us, God, I pray that you would help us to walk by the Spirit so that we hear this inner conflict. We hear your voice telling us when we are choosing ourselves. God, I pray that you would help us not to feel justified in withholding love or grace or forgiveness or care from others, Father, but that you would help us to be those who don't choose ourselves, but choose you and choose others. May we serve you by serving others. May we glorify you by the way that we love, just as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.